Hit him. I invite you to turn with me again this morning in your copy of God's Word to our New Testament scripture reading. Our text this morning can be found on page 822 of those uh, Blue Pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. Uh, we are looking at Matthew chapter 16. We'll pick up at verse uh, 21 and read uh, through the end of the chapter. Matthew 16, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Uh, we continue a lengthy sermon series in Matthew's Gospel. Sometimes in these long sermon series through these long books, we can sort of get lost or we can sort of glaze over about where we are, where we're going, especially when verses are so familiar like they are to us uh, in the Gospels. Uh, I want you to see this morning a significant turn, a turn that really some commentators say this is the middle point of Matthew's Gospel. Everything leads up to this point and everything goes down from this point. It's not the only way to divide uh, the, the gospel, the 28 chapters, but it's certainly one way, and I want to show you why it may be the crucial division uh, in Matthew's gospel uh, up to this point. Would you follow along with me then, beginning at verse uh, 21 of Matthew 16, we'll read uh, through the end of the chapter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord and our God, this rocky path you show us in the verses this morning is something we often shy away from. It's something we don't want. It's something we reject when it comes our way. I pray, O oh Lord, in these few minutes, you would direct our eyes up from our rocky path and we would look to our Savior. We would look to the one who has gone before us. We would look to the one who endured the cross and despised the shame. That we would indeed, in our own sufferings and sorrows, we would look to him. That we might see in his passion, in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection, the very path 
that you've called us to walk on. And that by faith, our eyes would be set upon Christ, our guide, our friend, our hero, but more than all, our redeemer who goes before us, that he might lead us from the grave to the throne. Teach us this, O Lord, in these few minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You all know that old saying, uh, what goes up must come down. It's a saying that can mean a lot of different things, right? Uh, It has a literal definition. What goes up must come down. You can think of gravity. Now you throw something in the air and it comes down. Apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, Isaac Newton was the first one to say this as he was discovering gravity, right? What physically goes up, a rock, a ball, what is it, an apple, right? And the famous illustration with Isaac Newton must come down. But it's a term we don't just use to describe physical things that go up and down, do we? It's a figurative term, right? Now your sports team is doing really well right now, but oh, what goes up must come down, right? They're probably going to lose or they're having a bad season coming up. Maybe you're excited about your, your stocks and your investments. Oh, what goes up must come down. Maybe it's a politician's popularity. Maybe it's that popularity in middle school that goes and comes so quickly, right? What goes up must come down. I want to show you in these verses that we can apply that old proverb to Jesus. And we can apply it to him both literally in these verses, and I think most importantly, more importantly, figuratively. You see, Christ goes up, literally, he goes up into the north to the city of Caesarea Philippi. We saw this last week. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, he is pulling back from the Jewish regions whenever he's threatened, which he's faced in the last few chapters, more and more threats from the religious leaders. He's not afraid. His time's just not ready. And so he steps back. He he pulls back. We've seen in the last two chapters, he's going out and away. He's going north. He's going towards the coast. And last week we saw he goes to the northernmost point that's recorded in, in the Gospels. Caesarea Philippi, way up north. And while he's there at that highest physical point, what happens sort of figuratively in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the greatest confession that we read last week. We're sort of building towards that point. All right, we've seen that Jesus is a, is a rabbi and he's a teacher and he's Lord. And he's the son of man. And he's the son of God. And finally, last week, on the lips of his disciples for the first time, he is the Christ. Not only is he far up geographically, but he's far up in their, in their eyes, in their minds, this great confession that he is the Christ. And then we get verse 21. <laughs> and what goes up must come down. And Jesus, from this high point in Caesarea Philippi, the confession of Christ begins to actually tell them what it means that he is the Christ. What it means that he will go down. He will go down towards Jerusalem. From this point on, the rest of the book, he's either in Jerusalem or he's headed towards Jerusalem. And he's not going to leave until he leaves the grave. He's headed down, down from the heights of Caesarea Philippi, but really down from the heights of this confession of the Christ because the Christ is the Messianic king that's supposed to come and rule and reign and the kingdom's here now and the disciples are ready to go full of glory and and victory. Verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer and be killed. It does not sound 
like the Messiah that they were expecting. What I want to show you in our verses this morning is that Jesus calls us as his disciples to follow him down on his path of suffering. Jesus calls us to follow him downward on his path of suffering. We're going to look at this path sort of in three headings or three parts uh, in our verses this morning. I first want to show you just in the first verse, verse 21, that God's son fulfills his path of suffering. That God the father has a path of suffering set out for his son and God the son, Jesus Christ, fulfills this path of suffering. Look at the first verse. Again, I think the most, one of the most important words in this section is that word must. That Jesus understands that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, uh, and be raised. That, be raised excuse me. that Jesus, up to this point, he has alluded to his death. He has made sort of veiled comments that he's going to suffer. And, of course, like most things Jesus says, they're just right over the head of his disciples. And now he's putting it right out there. So they can't miss it. And what he's showing them is that there's some burden that he has. There's some duty that he has. There is some plan that Jesus is aware of that they're not aware of that Jesus must do. Now, nobody tells God what he has to do, right? So the idea that somebody would give Jesus a plan that he must fulfill, well, that plan, it must come from God, Theologians refer to this sort of in the background as what we might call the covenant of redemption. That is, before creation, right before the foundations of the world, God existed for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God, the triune God, planned to create and save a people for himself. And that plan to save is what Jesus has in mind in this moment. There's something he has been sent to do. It's not like, well, mom says I I must clean my room before I go out and play. It's not that, right? This is the mission. This is the charge. This is the very purpose he has come to the world in the first place. This is a divine necessity that he must fulfill the plan of God. The details of that plan. There's four steps here. Go, suffer, killed, raised. You see those four steps He must go to Jerusalem. So way up in Caesarea Philippi, back down through Galilee, right? Back south, down the Jordan River, down to Jerusalem, the big capital city, right? The central uh, spot of their faith. Also the city that is known to kill the prophets. And that's where Jesus goes. It's finally time. I wonder if, as we've read Matthew, if you've been frustrated that Jesus keeps backing up whenever he's threatened, right? He goes somewhere else. He steps away by himself. Uh, And you're thinking, Jesus, when are you going to step to these guys, right? (laughs) And maybe you're like this in your life, right? You have a conflict. You got a conversation that you do not want to have. (laughs) You're not ready to have that hard conversation. And you just kind of keep waiting. You see the person, you think, I'm going to wait a couple more days. Time's not right. Maybe your friend, maybe your spouse is thinking, when are you going to have that conversation? (laughs) It's time, right? It's time to go go rip the Band-Aid off, right? Jesus keeps stepping back. Verse 20 from last week, he says, tells no one that he is the Christ. It's not time yet. Verse 21, it's time. It's time. Luke says about this same experience that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Everybody else wants to go to Jerusalem for the feast and the parties, all the people there, right? There's good shopping in Jerusalem, right? But Jesus knows what Jerusalem holds for him. It's the city that kills the prophets. And now it's time. He sets his face. And the rest of the book, his face is set to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the grave. The second aspect of this plan, go to Jerusalem and then suffer. Suffer what? Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. You take those three groups of people, you put them together, you get the Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders of the day, the ones who will find him guilty and condemn him to death. He doesn't tell us what he will suffer here. He just says many things. We learn later what he means by many things. We're going to see this in I think it's chapter 18 or 19. He will describe those many things as being mocked and being flogged. So verbal assaults on him, insults, mockery, and then physical. Flogged, whipped, beaten. He knows what is in store for him in Jerusalem. And he must endure that suffering. He takes it a step further. And be killed. And be killed. You notice those first two verbs are active. He's doing something almost. This verb is passive. He's the recipient of the actions of someone else. Same with suffering. But it sort of feels like he's maybe a little bit more kind of in control, we might say. Here he's passive. He is submitting himself in the divine plan of God to die at the hands of evil men. He doesn't tell us how he'll die. This is the first time he's going to do this two more times where he foretells his death and resurrection. And it gets sort of harder each time. It's more detailed. It's, it's harsher each time. The third time, we'll see this again, chapter 18. That's when he's going to tell us how he's going to die by crucifixion. He alludes to it when he tells, tells his disciples to carry the cross because he will carry his own cross. But this is how he will be killed as a common criminal in Jerusalem. Then the fourth detail of the plan takes a twist, doesn't it? We're going down to Jerusalem, down to suffer, uh, down to be killed into the grave. But then the end of verse 21, on the third day, he will be raised. He will be literally made alive again. He will go all the way down to death. He will go all the way into the grave. And then he will be raised again. The third day, This comes up over and over again in the prophecies and the fulfillments, the third day. This is what we've seen twice already in Matthew, the sign of Jonah, the prophet in the belly of the whale, uh, three days, the belly of the fish, three days. Notice again, the passive verb, he will be raised. Humans may be able to put him to death, but they can't raise him from death, can they? (laughs) To passively be raised means that God the Father is raising from death itself Jesus. Not that he pretended to die, not that he fell asleep, not that he got a concussion, not that he passed out, but he was dead. And in his death, as he went to his death, he entrusted himself to his Father in faith that the Father would raise him up again from the dead. In many ways, we are not like Jesus. In this way, we are. We too face death, trusting the promises of God that he will raise us again from the grave. You see, this this death of Jesus, the Christ, who has just been confessed, is not a failed mission for him. 
This doesn't mean he's a failed Messiah. Usually if somebody comes claiming to be a Messiah, what's the plan? We'll just kill him and then we get it over with, right? Well, this is not a failed Messiah. This is a different kind of Messiah. He will bring in the, 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 the armies of the host of heaven. He will bring in the justice and the righteousness and the mercy and the peace of God. But he will first go to the grave. I want you to to just think for a moment on what this tells us about the mind of Christ. That sometimes we speak of the gospel like it's just kind of a simple math equation. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen, right? But it's almost like Jesus is just a formula for us. We read in this text, he's a person. He is a man who is facing a, a gruesome death that nobody else seems to know about. And yet here he is. Weeks and months ahead of time, setting his face. I want you to see the determination and the commitment of your Savior to save you. You're not an accident. You're not an afterthought. That he must do it, yes, to fulfill the plan of God. It's the plan of God to save his people. That he would not turn his face away. He would not be tripped up. He would not be distracted. And when we wonder, when, when, when we doubt if God is really for us, when we, when we doubt if he really loves us, if we are really his, I want you to reflect on this commitment of your Savior, this determination of Jesus, bearing your sin with your name on his mind and his heart all the way to the cross. It's not something that happened to him. It was something that he embraced, that he must do to save you, his church. God's son fulfills his path of suffering. He must do it, and he does it. We learn from these verses, the path won't be easy. And yet, when we face the first challenge, when Jesus faces the first challenge, it still is surprising, isn't it? I want you to see the second part of this path. And that is that God's enemy foils his path of suffering. Verses 22 and 23. God's enemy foils his path of suffering. Uh, if you're taking notes, let me correct that. You should put an asterisk by the word foils and put tries to foil. <laughs> tries to stop. Tries to distract. Tries to destroy. Can we meet Peter again? Uh, Peter, who has just named Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus has named him as the rock, Now they're going to swap dual rebukes for one another. And Peter's going to go first again. And he is going to rebuke Jesus. That's even hard to say, isn't it? (laughs) Verse 22, Peter rebukes Jesus for telling them and showing them what he must suffer. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What's Peter thinking about? Why does Peter rebuke Jesus? I think maybe there's a couple reasons. I think one, it's just, it's a personal reason. He doesn't want his friend to suffer. You've probably said this to someone. They share a bad diagnosis with you and you say, well, it'll all be fine. Well, that's not going to happen to you. It's not really that bad. Maybe that's Peter's instinct here. He doesn't want to see his friend suffer and he knows that, wait, if he's the Christ and we follow the Christ and if he suffers, then we got to go with him, right? He don't want that for sure. He sort of, I don't know if he thinks he can speak it into existence. I don't know what Peter thinks uh, when he's rebuking Jesus. 
But more than just personal, I, I believe this is a theological rebuke because he's telling Jesus, hey, man, you're the Messiah. You know what Messiahs don't do? They don't die. <laughs> they don't suffer, right? That you're, we, I just said it. Didn't you hear me? You're the king. You go win and we follow you, right? We share your glory. Not the suffering and the tomb. One, uh, one commentator says, in application of Peter, he says, it's not our job to pastor Jesus. It's our job to follow him. Right? I mean, we don't, we don't correct Jesus. We don't pull him aside. Say, hey, I think you got that verse wrong. <laughs> we don't look at a verse in the Bible and say, man, that just doesn't fit my life. That doesn't fit this culture. That doesn't fit the context we're in today. Just, just come on, Jesus. We don't pastor Jesus. We, we follow him. It's a nice way to say it. Jesus actually says it pretty strong, much stronger. Verse 23, Peter gets the rebuke coming right back at him. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus invokes Satan as if Peter is here. The mouthpiece, I don't think, maybe that's too strong to say it, but Jesus, Peter is representing the arguments of God's enemy. Think about this for a second. Go back to when we first learn of Satan in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. And he's tempting Eve. And Eve has a rule. God's given her a rule. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan tries to convince her that it's okay to do that. What is he, what's he trying to do? He's trying to say, Eve, you know, your life, it's pretty hard because you got that rule you have to follow. I know the garden looks good, but man, that tree looks better, doesn't it? Let me just make your life a little bit easier. Let me take that law, that, that rule you don't want away from you. He does this again. We see him when he appears for the first time in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, where he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He gives him those three temptations. And the final one, we read this in Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. You know what he's saying? Have everything without the cross. Jesus knows it's all his, but how's he going to get there? He must suffer. And, this, and the devil says, I'll give it to you without the suffering. His plan is to tempt Jesus with the easy life. <laughs> and if he can keep Jesus away from suffering, you know what else he can keep Jesus away from? The cross. He gives Peter in this verse a different name. Do you note that? He says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Satan. Then he says, you are a hindrance to me. Maybe you see a footnote there. The word hindrance, the Greek is stumbling block. We can also translate that a stone of stumbling so he's the rock upon which the church is built and he's the rock that's trying to trip up Jesus. What is Peter's problem? Final phrase identifies his problem. He's not setting his mind on the things of God. He's setting his mind on the things of man. It's where his mind is set and he is set on the things of man. What does this mean in Peter's context? It means his mind is set on the victorious Messiah. His mind is set on the full kingdom of God to come and all of its power and all of its glory and all of its goodness and beauty and truth that all the riches of the kingdom is here right now. And Peter is stuck on that. Martin Luther called this a theology of glory. He only cares for the glory and the kingdom and the riches of God to come right now. 
That's his mindset on the things of man. Because what's the context of all of this? What's the context of Jesus calling himself the Christ? It's the gates of hell, which is death. It's going to Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. We'll see this in a moment. It's taking up your cross. It's the context of death and dying, the context of suffering. This is the plan of God. And yet Peter has his mind not on suffering, but on glory and riches and victory. These are the things of man. So Jesus calls Peter a rock of stumbling. And do you see how this is turned around for us? Because the hindrance is the one who wants to make the path easy, right? The smoothing out of the the suffering of this life is the work of the devil. Because Jesus has a plan for his people to suffer. And we are wrong when we, like Peter, think easy life equals blessing, right? And we think the easier it is, the more blessed I am. Such that when we are on the path of suffering, we're often tempted to think it's the wrong path. The easy path is supposed to be the path of Jesus, right? So last week that Jesus promised and we sang that the church will never perish, that Jesus will burst forth the gates of hell and we will follow with him in his victory. But you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say she'll never suffer. She will be attacked. She will be threatened. To endure, we must learn from Peter's mistake and we must set our mind on the things of God. That is the path that he's laid out before us and not the things of man. What does that look like? That's what I, sh- that's what I want to show you thirdly and finally in our text in verses 24 to 28. That God's children follow his path of suffering. God's son fulfills it. God's enemy foils it or tries to. And God's children follow his path of suffering. Uh, one of the things I love about living in uh, this part of the state is we're so close to the mountains. We can go to hikes all the time. And uh, my family uh, has a love-hate relationship with going with hikes. Sometimes we love it, and other times we certainly don't love it. Uh, it has to do with how hard the hike is, right? <laughs> you pull up your app, you open your, your, your laptop, you open those hiking books, and what do they tell you about the trails you want to go on, right? They're easy, right? They're moderate, or they're hard. Uh, in our house, there's lots of people that want the easy path, and then there's my wife that always wants the hard path. <laughs> and I side with my children on the easy path. <laughs> if we were to look up the path of discipleship in the hiking guide, it would be rated difficult, right? And that's not what we want. Look what Jesus, look how he describes the path that is laid before his disciples. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Four different ideas here. They're really split up into pairs. Come after me, number one, and follow me, number four. That's the same idea. And then number two and three, deny himself and take up his cross. Those are descriptions of this call of discipleship. To deny yourself is to renounce your rights, even 
your right to life as an individual. To take up your cross is literally to carry the instrument of your own death. It's not about wearing a cross necklace, right? Follow me, Jesus says, on the path of suffering. It, this isn't sort of four different concepts. It's one concept. It is come after me on the path of suffering. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see that, that call in verse 24 is clarified in verses 25 and 26. How do we do this? How are we called to deny ourselves? The answer here, if I could summarize, is that we're called to make a hard choice, to make a difficult choice. And here is the choice summarized in verses 25 and 26. It is the choice between this life and the next life. And Jesus tells us you can't have both. Look how he phrases it. Do you want to save your earthly life? Do you want to gain this earthly life? Then you will lose eternal life. Then you will forfeit eternal life. He uses the language of the soul, body and soul. Right? The soul is uh, the, that spirit within us. Right? It's who we are. It's who we, we trust in Christ with our soul and is lost if we are seeking only to live for this world. The losing of life in these verses it certainly means for many of these disciples a literal losing of life. Most of these disciples will be martyred for the faith at some point in the next few decades. They will lose their life, literally, because they have valued and called Jesus and his kingdom greater than the things of this world. It can also mean, and it does also mean, a figurative or a metaphorical losing of life. It means... That Christian, you're not going to get your best life now, right? It means you're not going to get the things and the riches of this world. It means that following Jesus is hard. It means that the call of discipleship is not easy. Now, most of you know this, right? Most of you can look back in your life and you can see what you have lost out on in this world because you chose by the grace and mercy of God to trust Jesus and follow him all of your days. And you look back with praise for how God has sustained you in those difficulties. And I hope you're ready for more to come. It's a big choice. There's also little choices we make. The, the big choice breaks down into little choices, the choice every day to take up our cross and follow Jesus. The choice every day to deny ourselves. Your, de your life is, sure, there's one big choice, right? To repent and believe or not. But that, that is filled out with all of these little choices. How will I spend my time today that denies myself and follows Jesus? How will I spend my money in ways that deny myself and follow Jesus? Am I living for the, the joys and the pleasures of this world under the name of Christ? Or am I truly, actually denying myself, taking up my cross, and following him? Now, I want, I want you to hear me say, on the one hand, following Jesus is hard. And the other hand, I want you to hear me say, it's the best thing you'll ever do. 
It's the most joyous thing you'll ever do. Because look at the final two verses. He gives us the call in verse 24. He gives us the clarity in verses 25 and 26. Finally, he gives us the comfort, verses 27 and 28. He gives us encouragement to make this hard choice. He looks to the future. Uh, in fact, we're going to divide this up. Verse 27, he looks to the distant future. Verse 28, he looks to the, to the near future. I'll explain that in a moment. Verse 27 says, the son of man, that's Jesus' name for himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. God will repay. Now, how in the world is that comforting? Some of you know well Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is is the account of a man aiming to follow God. And his life's really hard. And he's getting very, very frustrated. Because he looks around and he sees people not following God. And he sees that their life is going really well. And the first 16 or so verses of Psalm 73, he's asking the question essentially, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? That makes no sense, God. So much so that he's worried that if he speaks, he's going to blaspheme God because he's so frustrated. He's trying to follow God and it's so hard and some people aren't following God and it's so easy for them. But then the psalm, it turns in verse 17. He says, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He discerned their end. He realized, he learned, he remembered again that God will repay. For some of us, that's comforting, and for some of us, that should not be comforting. That should be terrifying. That God knows and sees everything. Every word, every action, he knows every thought. And he will repay according to what we have done. This is not calling us to start doing good things and stop doing bad things. (laughs) We know that for the Christian, he repays what we have done by pouring it on the head of Jesus. But for those who have not sought safety under the cross of Christ, that repayment will come on our head. That's the far future. And then verse 28, a very confusing verse for many people, uh, takes us back to the near future. He says, truly I say to you, there are some studying here, standing here, excuse me, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus is saying, taste death. He said, that's, just a figure of speech for die. So he's saying the disciples who are with them, that some of them will not die until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So if people read that and they think, I guess Jesus thought he was going to come back before he did, or he got it wrong, or he didn't understand the timing and the plan of God. Let me encourage you when you're trying to interpret scripture and you think Jesus got something wrong, keep studying, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's probably you. Uh, that has gotten something wrong. What seems to be happening here is Jesus is referring to uh, the coming of the kingdom. And we often think of that as the second coming, when he returns, right? This In the future, still in the future. But that's accurately saying that is the consummation of the kingdom of God, right? That's, the, that's everything in all of its glory. But we also read in scripture that the kingdom comes, it is inaugurated, it is begun. The arrival of the kingdom begins in the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection, his ascension to the throne of God and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit 
at Pentecost. That sort of two-month period there is the inauguration of the kingdom. And he's telling them, it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer just like me. But you will begin to taste the dawning of that kingdom. It will begin to come in your lifetime, disciples. And for you and me, it is here even in our lifetime. Jesus says, yes, the path is hard, but you don't walk alone. You follow me and I am with you. We began with the old proverb, what goes up must come down. Let me turn it around as we end. What goes down must come up. That's not gravity. That's the gospel. For Christ, he went down, down to Jerusalem, down to the pit where he was imprisoned as he had been flogged and mocked, down to the tomb itself. And then he rose up from the grave, ascended into heaven. He lives and reigns even now. And the promise for his church that as he has burst the gates of hell, that they are shattered for us. (laughs) And they cannot keep us in and they cannot keep us down in the grave. Dear Christian, follow Jesus in faith today, downward on his path of suffering. For one day soon, he will lead you up to his palace of glory. Let us pray. Our Lord, forgive us for seeking the things of this world. Forgive us, O God, for living for the riches of this life. Forgive us, O Lord, for adopting the mindset of Peter, seeking the easy life and thinking that's your path. Lord, lead us to follow you. But more importantly, O God, set our eyes upon Jesus who endured the suffering for us, who endured the cross for us. For though our suffering is like his, it is not at all like yours. We rejoice that you took Lord Jesus, upon your head, the very wrath of God that is to repay us for our sins, that you might extend to us the blessing of God and welcome us into your everlasting kingdom. Lord, how is it that we would benefit from such a promise and such a gospel? We will never know. But Lord, we praise you for it. We adore you for it. And we rise rejoicing that we are heirs to such a great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close uh, singing hymn 431. And can it be that I should gain hymn 431?